0: You are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA
1: in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God For those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
0: Thanks for reading scripture for us. Well, this passage today is all about life and spiritual birthdays and baptism and what it means for us here and now. And I think that there are years that can go by in our life where we might take these earthly years a little bit more for granted. There can be years, not just for kids, but for grown-ups too, where we're especially fixated on the presence or the cake, or the party, or the dinner plans. And then there are other years that feel very different, whether by illness, or age, or loss in our family. All of that fades into the background, and we experience such vivid clarity about what really matters. And so I want to ask you as we move into this text today, just to consider what really matters in your life right now? What are the greatest values that shape the hours of your day and the days of your week? What are your biggest struggles? What are your greatest longings? As we shared last week, starting after Easter, we're going to enter a four-month season of studying the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So that'll be Sunday mornings and in our Y groups And we're even going to have a chance to translate the Gospel of Mark for a people group that has never had the Bible in their own language before. And we're going to kick all this off on Easter Sunday by giving away a book to every household of the Y Church, a book that is called Jesus the King. It's a book all about the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And the author of this book is somebody named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor out in New York City. He's a wonderful author. And this past year, right in the middle of the pandemic, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I was reading an article by him this week in which he was describing just the vast uncertainty of what he is walking through now. The complexity of emotion, the fear, what it means to live by faith. And he shared in that article this brief prayer that he has been praying every day since his diagnosis. And I want to share that with you. Here's what he prays. And as I lay down in sleep and rose this morning only by your grace, keep me in the joyful, lively remembrance that whatever happens, I will someday know my final rising, because Jesus Christ lay down in death for me and rose from my justification. Now, I don't know how often you use the word justification in your prayers. I can tell you that it has not come up too often in mine. But as I read this prayer by Tim Keller, I thought he has it exactly right. For five whole chapters, we've been reading now in Romans about justification by faith. The fact that we're forgiven and declared righteous before God in Christ. Last week in chapter 5, we said that's what makes all the difference for our eternity. The promise of glory. And now here in chapter 6, Paul is asking, yes, and now what does this have to do with our present reality? Is it all about heaven? Or is there something happening right now? And the answer will be a resounding yes. This is a matter of life and death in your daily life. So in the text before us this morning, I've marked out three big takeaways for us. Sometimes in reading Romans, it is easy to lose the forest for the trees, because the sentences are long, the words are maybe long as well, and the train of thought is complicated. But when we wrestle with the text and we follow what Paul says, I think three things emerge in what Carol just read for us, and that is verses 1 to 7, 8 to 11, and 12 to 14. So if you like to write in your Bible, you can bracket it that way. That's going to be our study in Scripture this morning. And so let's look at how Paul begins. First of all, he has just wrapped up chapter 5, where we were last week. And he says now, what shall we say then? So you see this transition. And then more specifically, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And this question goes back to the content of chapter 5, where Paul had said, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? The greater the sin, the greater the grace. Just look at the Apostle Paul's own life. And you see this guy who once persecuted Christians. And he's speaking here from experience, saying, Grace increased all the more. The cross is that powerful. It's that effective that there is no crime too great that grace cannot cover it. But here's the question Paul's asking He's saying, Does that mean then? We can take advantage of it. You know, you think about a child who knows that he has a forgiving father. Does that mean that the child then just is going to be as disobedient as possible and live it up? Because at the end of the day, he knows there's forgiveness? W.H. Auden said once, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. But did Auden miss the point? Dietrich von Bonhoeffer would have thought so. He calls this cheap grace. And he writes, The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. So that's his description of cheap grace. Grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. And that comes from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. But listen how Paul answers the question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Verse 2, here's the answer. By no means, some Bibles say, may it never be. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so that's what that first section, 1 to 7, is all about. We have died to sin. You see, in verse 2, what's being described is a transfer of realms. Like we have moved out of one kingdom and moved into a different one. I remember when I saw Brett Favre in a Vikings jersey for the first time. Do you remember how weird that was? A transfer of realms had taken place for our younger guys who are out here seeing Tom Brady in a Tampa Bay Buccaneers jersey. A transfer of realms. Perhaps a more serious analogy, though, would come from C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The opening lines of that book describe an irritating, exasperating boy named Eustace. In fact, the first line of the whole book says... There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) It's a classic opening line. But by the midpoint of the book, something had changed. Eustace meets Aslan, who is the lion who symbolizes Christ in the books. And Eustace consents to Aslan's power. And after this dramatic encounter, here is what Lewis writes. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And what I want to draw out now is this distinction between justification where we have spent five chapters the previous weeks, and what the Bible calls sanctification. The transfer of realms is justification. What Jesus did for us on the cross that we receive in faith. And then the cure that began in Eustace, that is where we're talking about sanctification. This process that follows justification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And that's where Romans is going now. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. That's justification. But we have also been set free from the power of sin in our life. And that is sanctification. Robert Mount says Christ's death for sin becomes our death to sin. This is where Paul begins. He's saying, We are those who have died to sin. He's saying, We don't live in that realm anymore. We moved. The power of sin is broken. And then he develops that thought with the picture of baptism. And so he starts here with a question again in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So I was meeting just a couple of weeks ago with a family from church as we're planning for baptism. And we were talking about these very things in this very chapter of Romans. We're going to celebrate in a few weeks Baptism with a boy named Harrison. And so as we talked, we talked about how baptism goes hand in hand with believing. These two words go together. Really, baptism could be seen as a mark of discipleship. It is a sign that I have transferred realms, like it says in Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, the first kingdom, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And when that is your reality, then baptism becomes its declaration. And so we could ask ourselves, can a person be a Christian without being baptized? And biblically, that's really a question that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because these two things are really parts of one whole. It almost be like asking the question, does the sun have to be hot? Believing and baptism go together. And that's why all over the world, wherever people come to faith in Christ, they're baptized. Whether it's stepping into a jungle river, or it's in a desert oasis, whether it's at a baptismal font, or in a Minnesota lake. Followers of Jesus, of all ages, of all nations, are baptized. And so I want to encourage you, let me share with you, if, if you've placed your trust in Jesus and haven't been baptized yet, I would love to have that conversation with you. And, and we would love to celebrate your baptism here at the Y Church in the near future. The word itself, baptism, means immerse. But we have to remember that the water of baptism itself is not the point. Baptism is the instrument through which we're put into relationship with the death burial and resurrection of Christ. In Martin Luther's terms, he would call this a means of grace. And when Luther was reading Romans and discovering the riches of this book, he started writing books for discipleship that families could use at home. The language of the church at the time was Latin, and yet only the priests could really understand it. So that meant you had all these families who were coming to church And they couldn't make heads or tails of it. And so Luther started to write in German so that we could all read it and understand it. And he started with the Bible, and then he wrote these books for faith formation, for families to use at home for the process of sanctification, that we would become more like Jesus. And here's what he said about baptism in the small catechism. He said it signifies that the old creature in us with all sins and evil desires is to be drowned and die. And on the other hand, that daily a new person is to come forth and rise up to live before God in righteousness and purity. And then guess what? Right in the small catechism, guess what verse Luther quotes? Romans 6.4, the very next one in our reading. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That last phrase there says literally, so we too may walk in newness of life. And that word for walk is one of my favorite vocab words in Greek. It's the word peripateo. And I think of it now every time I watch this stupid cartoon with my kids, Phineas and Ferb. And inevitably, they find a, a new show and I tell them how dumb it is. And within three weeks, I'm on the couch watching every episode with them. So Phineas and Ferb has this character named Perry the Platypus. And so I guess the way my brain works, every time I see him, I'm thinking Perry Pateo. Perry Pateo in Romans 6.4. It means to walk around. And it points to a manner of life, a new way of walking. And so I want you to imagine how in the city of Rome, these Romans and Greeks and slaves and slave owners are all learning a new way of walking. There's Jewish believers there and Gentiles, women, soldiers, merchants, people of ill repute and assorted past. And they're all coming together together learning a new way to walk as they follow Jesus. And you think it was messy sometimes? It for sure was messy. But they were in a new kingdom, and the Holy Spirit was teaching them how to live a new life. In baptism, we are participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. It is truly a watershed moment in the life of the believer. And as long as we're at it, how about one last quote from Luther. I was just having so much fun this week digging through these old books. So, this one's from the Large Catechism. And if we have more time, we could talk about the Westminster Catechism from the Reformed tradition. But here's what Luther said Therefore, let all Christians regard their baptism as the daily garment. You picture that as you get dressed in the morning? That they are to wear all the time. Every day they should be found in faith and with its fruits, suppressing the old creature. And growing up in the new. That old creature is what comes up now in verse 6. Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And so we see here again Paul using language that would have been so familiar to the Romans. The vocabulary of slavery and ruling and masters. Remember what we said in the very first week? What percentage of the population in Rome were slaves? A third. And if you counted all the freed slaves in Rome, that number rose to two-thirds. So he's speaking their language. And Paul says to the Roman believers, who you were has been crucified with Christ. You are no longer slaves to sin, but you have been set free. And I wonder... If you and I know this truth in our daily life, that we have been set free from sin, because we know that sin can be a persistent enemy, can't it? It can be a persistent old enemy. Just because you've transferred realms doesn't mean then that Satan won't send in his agents to attack. And not just that external attack, but also there's this kind of Residual sin within us that is being dealt with and subdued. So thinking back to Eustace, the cure had begun, but it was a process and there were setbacks along the way. So while it's not a constant condition anymore, sin does remain a real threat in the life of the believer. And it is possible to live in a way that is not consistent with who God has made you to be. It's possible to have transferred realms, but to stumble around in the new one and to not peripateo, to walk in it. But lest we think of maybe just the numerous examples of public figures, of Christian leaders who have fallen from grace, I would just encourage us each to consider our own life. The Puritan John Flavel said in a memorable line, It is easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own. So it's good for us to consider where the curing power of the Spirit should come and heal our own lives. For you, it it could be a fixation on money or how to spend a stimulus check. It could be a, a bitter spirit towards your spouse or constant bickering with your siblings at home. It could be a me-first attitude, or grumbling about chores, or dabbling with pornography, or holding a grudge. I just list a few things for all of us to get the wheels going and have a time to self-reflect. Romans tells us, do not let these things hold sway in your life. You are not under the tyranny of sin anymore. Instead, Consciously choose to place yourself at the service of King Jesus. Well, we run into this problem sometimes. We're on the home stretch of the message and we're about halfway through the text. Especially in Romans, we have this challenge. It is a place we could spend months and years in. In many ways, we should. But for today, I'd like to just get us to the imperatives that Paul then comes to. And so we'll do that here in short order. The first section, again, was verses 1 to 7, where Paul says, we've died to sin. The second section is verses 8 to 11, where he says, we're alive in Christ. And the transition here comes between the two of them in verse 8, where Paul says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. And then scanning down with me to the end of that section, we have the very first command in all of Romans. I didn't know that so I was studying this week. But this is often how the New Testament functions in the letters. In that the first half, we have what is descriptive. And then we move into what is prescriptive in the second half of the letter. So Paul is writing and saying, because all of these things are true... Now here's what we can do. Here's how we respond. And so that's what we're looking at here as we come to the first command in all of Romans in 6.11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The character of Andy in the Shawshank Redemption said, get busy living or get busy dying. And here Paul is admonishing us To get busy living. It's the final section. It's marked by imperatives in verses 12 to 14. And as we read this, keep your eyes peeled. There are two prohibitions. So Paul's saying, don't do this. You're going to see two commands. Two positive statements. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. My daughters have entered a precious season of life and that is middle school band. This year, it all started. And so at our house... The house is full of the sounds of the clarinet and the flute. And the clarinet sometimes squeaks and squawks. And the flute player sometimes gets a little lightheaded. But I tell you what, they're learning how to play these instruments. And the songs are getting better as the time goes on. And it, for me as a father, is just music to my ears to hear my children play. Do you realize... That you get to offer every part of yourself to God as a living instrument of righteousness. It's not going to be perfect, as you learn. There's going to be some wrong notes along the way, especially at the beginning. But then little by little, your life will start to sound and look more and more like Jesus. You can get busy living or get busy dying. In the last summary verse, we just had to wrap it in here as Paul closes in chapter 6. He says in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that you have received this gift and that you are learning to walk in it. I want to close with a final story about a guy named Phillips Brooks. And I don't suppose you've heard of Phillips Brooks. His name didn't ring a bell for me, but I bet you know his song. He wrote, O Little Town of Bethlehem. So Phillips Brooks is described by his friends as a guy who was very busy, not unlike many of us. And yet he was somebody where they said he was so relaxed and unburdened. And if you needed help or someone was in need at the drop of a hat, he would go do it and be right there. And so toward the end of his life, Brooks was an old man by this point. A young friend wrote to him and asked, what is the secret of your strength and this peaceful spirit that you have? And I want you to listen to what he wrote back to his friend. He said, the more I have thought it over, the more sure it has seemed to me that these last years have had a peace and fullness which there did not used to be. It is a deeper knowledge and truer love of Christ. He is here. He knows me and I know Him. It is the most real thing in the world and every day makes it more real. And one wonders with delight what it will grow to as the years go on. Oh, my brothers and sisters, may you and I Wonder with delight at our relationship with Christ and what it will grow to as the years go on. Will you pray with me? Our loving God and King, this morning we thank you for rescuing us from the power of sin and death, that you have brought us into a new kingdom. Lord, that you have redeemed us and called us each by name. And so as your children this morning, Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to walk in this newness of life. No matter how many years we have been following after you, whether it's very recent or it is many decades, Lord, may our lives be to you a sweeter and sweeter offering of praise. Lord, that we would be instruments of righteousness in your hand. This is our desire, Lord, all the way to the end till you bring us into your very presence in heaven. Lord, we ask your blessing over each one here today. Praying all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about The Y Church, check us out online at thewhychurch.org.